Friends, we just lived through 2020, a year that was marked by hidden threats with potentially deadly consequences and calls to action. Well, the letter of Jude is actually an urgent letter calling the church to action because of hidden threats with potentially deadly consequences. But it didn't start out that way. Take your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Jude, please, the next to last book in in the Bible. This is our second of six studies in this short letter. And as you look at verse 3, you'll notice that apparently... Jude had been working on writing to the early church in Palestine about, quote, our common salvation, which was likely some sort of book of doctrine or maybe a systematic theology detailing the gospel, grace, and glory of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read that book, too, probably very similar to the book that Paul wrote to the Romans. But Jude was taken away from his original work and compelled to address an urgent and critical situation going on in the church in Palestine. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And what was the urgent and critical situation in the church? Well, verse 20 through 23 tells us that some in the church were falling away from the faith and others were beginning to doubt the faith. So Jude wrote a letter to the church to expose a hidden threat that had potentially deadly consequences, and to call the church to action, to contend for the faith. Our sermon text this morning is Jude verses 3 and 4. And as we study this text, my prayer is that we will all see the threat against our faith and be motivated to contend for it. So let's read from the beginning of Jude, verse 1 through 4. Friends, this is God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, that'll end the reading of God's Word for now. But as we look at verse 3 and 4, our sermon text for today, we first notice in verse 3 Jude's exhortation to the church. Jude exhorts the church to contend for the faith. Do you see that in verse 3? Contend for the faith. And to understand this exhortation, I think we need to answer at least two questions. First of all, what is the faith for which the church is supposed to contend? And then what does Jude mean by contend? So let's take a look at those two questions one at a time. First of all, question number one, what is, quote, the faith for which the church is supposed to contend? What does Jude mean by the faith? Well, the faith he describes as a body of truth that was, look there in verse 3, once delivered for all to the saints, or once for all delivered to the saints. This word delivered means to be handed over. So the faith is that body of truth or that body of doctrine, what we believe that has been handed from Jesus to the original 12, the apostles, from the apostles to their disciples, guys like Titus and Timothy and Apollos and etc. And then from them to the elders and to the church at large. The faith has been entrusted to faithful men who will teach faithful men so that they can teach others so that it can be preserved and proclaimed all over the world throughout the rest of history. And the idea in verse 3, that it was once for all delivered, emphasizes that this body of truth, this doctrine, is once for all inspired by God. It is perfect and complete. It is our faith over against any new or novel doctrine that might come up in the future. It's authoritative from God. In the New Testament, the faith is synonymous with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes like this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So Paul uses the term the faith and the gospel many different times, like here in Colossians chapter 1, as synonyms. Paul talks to Timothy, a pastor at the church of Ephesus, about being entrusted with the faith or entrusted with the gospel. Nick read that for us earlier. And he speaks of this faith and this gospel as that which has been both entrusted to Timothy and rejected by false teachers. Listen, for example, in 1 Timothy 
Chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith with a good conscience, and by rejecting this, by rejecting this faith, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So the faith is that which was entrusted to the church and that which was rejected by false teachers. Paul speaks throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus about these pastors and these churches defending against false teaching and preserving the faith because it was such a threat to their churches. He talked about some who depart from the faith. Some who swerve from the faith. Throughout history, the faith has been codified into creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed that we confessed just a moment ago. And it's defined probably best. The faith in this particular letter by that which is perverted and denied. Look in verse 4. What was it that was perverted and denied about the faith? (laughs) Actually becomes a great definition of the faith. Look there in your Bibles at verse 4. Who pervert, what? The grace of God into sensuality and deny, what? Our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the faith is? The faith is the truth of the grace of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's that confidence that we have for our salvation in him alone. So what is the faith for which this church was to contend? It's the gospel, grace, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished through his death, resurrection, and intercession in heaven today. The second question, if we're to understand Jude's exhortation to contend for the faith, now that we understand the faith, we've got to understand what it means to contend for it. Well, to contend is an athletic or military term. To contend with, to fight for, to strive against. It's where we get our term agonize, which emphasizes passion and intensity. Contend is aggressive. It's intense because the faith is important. So when Jude tells the church to contend for the faith, he's not just talking about a a friendly discussion or a friendly uh, competition. It presupposes real conflict. Jude is calling for war. Much like Paul did in 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight of the faith. 
take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That which you confessed, fight for. It's important, friends. Or Philippians chapter 1. What does it mean to contend for the faith? Paul says to the church at Philippi, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that I may hear that you are, listen to these verbs, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So to contend for the faith is to stand firm in it and to strive side by side with your brothers and sisters in the church for it. Like a soldier fights an enemy. Like a a badger protects her den. Like a nation combats terrorism. Contend like a father confronts an intruder in the middle of the night. Like your body defends itself against a virus. Why? Why does Jude call us to contend for the faith? Because, verse 4, because there is a hidden threat with potentially deadly consequences. Verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We had the exhortation in verse 3. Now we have the explanation, the reason that we're supposed to contend for the faith in verse Four. So it seems obvious to me that if we're going to understand his explanation, we've got to ask at least two more questions. First of all, who were these certain people that were corrupting the faith? And then secondly, what was their false doctrine? Question number one. So who are these people that have infiltrated the church and are corrupting the faith. Well, Jude gives four characteristics here and then describes them more throughout the letter. I'd encourage you, if you have not already, each week read the little letter of Jude in preparation for our study together. It will will be good for you. It'll help you to get your mind and heart around this letter so that you can understand it better. But here in verse 4, Jude gives four characteristics. First of all, they are certain people. They're real people with names and faces that those in that church knew. But notice he doesn't call them out by name. He just keeps calling them these people. (laughs) These people. Look at verse 8, verse 12, verse 14, 16, 19, these people, what Jude is doing is he's vilifying these people as opponents of the gospel. 
This is this not conceptual? This is personal. As Gene Green, a commentator on Jude, says, Jude is drawing the line as sharply as possible between the heretics and the believers in that church. These certain people are opponents of the gospel. Secondly, they're insiders. Note in verse 4. They have crept in unnoticed. They're insiders, not outsiders. These people are in the church. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. These are the kind of people that came to the church as the church met and ate their love feast, which was the the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which was much more than just added on to a worship service. It was a whole feast and celebration of the gospel. These people were there. And they were there because they were part of the church. They're insiders. And look, they crept in. Doesn't that sound intentional and nefarious? It is. It indicates that these people have an agenda and purpose. They have intentionally infiltrated the church in order to influence people away from the true gospel. And notice in verse 16, they show favoritism, winsome personalities in order to gain an advantage. That's intent. Look, friends, these are not merely confused sheep. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're predators. The third way that Jude describes these certain people who are corrupting the faith there in verse 4 is that they long ago were designated for this condemnation. Designated means to be marked out. It's a legal term. Like it's an official decree or a public announcement. The essence is that although they have crept in unnoticed in the church, you should not be surprised by their presence. We should have been watching them or watching for them all along. Why? Because these kinds of people have been marked out by prophecy and public announcement for a long time. They will be condemned. Or as Green says, they will not escape judgment. Look down in verse 17. Jude revisits this a number of times that we will look out, look at over the next four weeks, but especially in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, The predictions, see there's that long ago, predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. 
These are certain people, insiders, who are condemned. And number four, they are ungodly people. Ungodly is the opposite of godly. It means that they are impious and unrighteous. They're people of low character. Why? Because they don't fear and worship God. They are ungodly and their life shows it. Verse 19, he says, they are worldly people. And notice this last phrase. Look there in verse 19. Devoid of the spirit of God. Devoid of the spirit. They are ungodly. They do not have God. And then I, I just want to point out that the rest of the letter tells us two more things that I think are important for us to understand here at the very beginning. Not only are they certain people inside condemned and ungodly, but look at verse 8. They are very persuasive. The reason that they are a deadly threat with their false doctrine is because they're very persuasive people. In verse 8, it says that they rely on their dreams. So they've come into this church and they claim spiritual authority because they say they have received new revelation in dreams from God. And they say that this new revelation is set against the old apostolic teaching and should redefine that apostolic teaching. Not only are they persuasive, but look at verse 16, they're also divisive. Verse 16, they are grumblers, malcontents, they're loud mouth boasters. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. So who are these people? Well, answer, there are certain people inside the church who are intentionally leading people away from the faith and causing division by their persuasive claim to have received new revelation from God in, in dreams. But really, Jude says, this is not new revelation from God. This is false teaching. They are ungodly people who have been marked out for condemnation by God and we need to be warned about them. Question number two, as we consider his reason for calling us to contend for the faith, now that we understand who these certain people are, what was their doctrine that they were spreading? What was so false and bad about the doctrine that they were spreading around the church? Well, continue there in verse 4. These people are those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We could see that as two separate things or one thing that results in the other. First of all, Notice in verse 4 that they pervert the grace of God. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. 
Now, don't let that term grace just go in one ear and out the other because we talk about it and hear it so often. Friends, grace is God's saving activity through the finished work of Jesus Christ that calls and beloves and keeps you. They're perverting grace. They're altering it, redefining it, putting a new spin on the grace of God, specifically with regard to sexuality. Sensuality is sexuality. So their perversion of grace is a perversion of sexuality. They're claiming that God's grace gives them freedom to express their sensual passions however they prefer. Jude identifies this explicitly four times in this little letter. Look at verse 4. Perversion of grace into sensuality. Look at verse 7. He uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise did what? indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, yet in like manner, these people also, what do they do? They defile the flesh. Look at verse 16. These people follow their own sinful desires. Look at verse 18. These people follow their own ungodly passions. Their perversion of grace ends up in a perversion of human sexuality. They define grace as the freedom to enjoy life. Listen, God's given you as in His grace. Enjoy life and express yourself sexually however you prefer. But friends, listen. Grace is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Paul speaks definitively on this issue. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin, still live in it. He goes on in chapter 6 to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Their perversion of grace as a license for sin ended up as a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think this is two separate things. I don't think that they perverted grace and denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I think by their perversion of grace, which became a perversion of human sexuality, they therefore denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Notice what he says about that at the end of verse 4. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. To deny is the opposite of confess. The early church had confessions and creeds. Before every baptism, the early church and that one who was a new convert, a new disciple of Jesus Christ, do you know what his or her confession was? Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like the Christian version of the Jewish Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Christian version is Jesus is Lord. It emphasizes his deity and his lordship. For example, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For example, Romans chapter 10, listen to this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Rather than confessing that Jesus is Lord, they're denying it. And if not verbally, they're doing it in effect by their lifestyle. Because they, relying on their dreams, in verse 8, they reject authority. They reject the authority of their Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, they blaspheme all that they don't understand and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. See, rather than confessing Jesus as Lord, they are relying on that which they understand instinctively. Verse 18, they're scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So what was this false gospel that they were spreading? They perverted the grace of God into a license to express their sexuality however they prefer. And this is clearly a denial of the lordship of Jesus, if not verbal and explicit. It is active and effective by their conduct. Now, friends, as we read this, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. How does this exhortation to them back then and there apply to us here at Winchester Baptist Church? Well, first of all, I think Jude would want us to consider what false teachers and false teachings might be creeping into our church unnoticed. 
what might they be? Well, false doctrine doesn't come with a warning label. (laughs) False teachers don't wear name badges. Notice Jude didn't describe these certain people by how they look or where they come from, by their race or ethnicity. He described them by what they believe. Friends, with more and more influencers out there in our culture, we have to be more and more careful about how we're influenced. Not everything that calls itself Christian is. Not everyone who says that they are presenting the gospel is. That means that we need to be very discerning about what we read, who we listen to on our podcasts, and who we follow on social media. There are many, many dangerous doctrines creeping into the church. Doctrines that contradict the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mysticism. Moralism. Rationalism. Legalism, all false teaching. Some promote the gospel as trusting God to bring about worldly prosperity. Some suggest it's possible to accept Jesus as your Savior while ignoring his claim as Lord. Some believe Christianity boils down to serving the the needy and fighting for social justice. Those are good things for sure, but they say little about sin or atonement. But of all of these false gospels that are in and around the church, friends, I'm not sure that there is any false doctrine threatening the American church more than exactly what we see here in the book of Jude. The free expression of human sexuality. From sensuality in every form to gender identity, human sexuality is trending in America. And what's trending in America slowly influences and infiltrates the church. And what happens next is is very sad. All too often the church, because we fear irrelevancy, the church reconsiders our position. On these matters, the the church adjusts its doctrine to become more accepting and more appealing. And the result? God's grace is perverted by the church to the extent that many, even today, teach that God has freed us from guilt so that we can 
enjoy what comes naturally. After all, didn't God make us this way? You're free. You're loved. You're safe. Enjoy what comes naturally. And that is a false teaching. That leads me to a second application. Not only should we consider what false teachers and false teaching might be creeping into our church unnoticed, but we should contend for the faith. What does it look like in that specific area to contend for the faith? Well, over the next four weeks, Jude is going to teach us how to contend for the faith by giving us a four-dimensional perspective of what it looks like to contend for the faith. But for now, just for this sermon this morning, contending for the faith, according to verse 3, contending for the faith is standing firm in the doctrine that, quote, has once for all been delivered to the saints. Friends, don't be deceived. God clearly calls His people to a scriptural, biblical, sexual ethic. God does not call ourselves to freedom of expression or excess. Part of contending for the faith is holding on to the clear teaching of the scriptures that has been delivered once and for all to the saints and is currently being redefined by not only the culture, but by the churches in our culture. See, the Bible teaches that God's design for human sexuality is a wonderful gift to be reserved for and expressed in a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Therefore, we believe that any intimate sexual activity outside of marriage is a sinful perversion of God's gift and God's design for human sexuality. Anything out of one man, one woman in a marriage covenant, any expression of sexuality outside of that is a perversion, not only of sexuality, but if you came to uh, claim to be a Christian, a perversion of the grace that you have in Christ. For example, look with me please at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul said to the church at Ephesus in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this. There's that once for all delivered to the saints, Old Testament, New Testament, law, poems, gospel, epistles, cover to cover, God's design. You can be sure of this, he says in verse 5, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, and an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Church, grace is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the freedom that Jesus secured for us from sin frees us to live as God intended It doesn't just deliver us from what's wrong. It frees us to enjoy what's right, the way God intended life. In John chapter 10, Jesus took us into the sheepfold and he described his gospel this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that the sheep might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, that's greater than all, no one is able to Snatch them out of his hand. Friends, Jude has warned us that false teachers and their false teaching have not only crept in, but are still creeping into the church, causing some to fall away from the faith and others to doubt. In our culture, Jude rings true today. It's absurd for many 
to consider the biblical sexual ethic as God's design in this culture. Many are saying it just can't be. Many feel the pressure to redefine and to think a different way about human sexuality, and it will only increase for your children. But these are not persuasive new revelations. We haven't come to better truth about this than what God has already given to us. It's a perversion of the grace of God, and it is a denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So friends, don't be deceived. Grace doesn't free us to sin, it frees us from sin. And may God give us the wisdom to see the threats against our faith and the grace to stand strong on the faith that has once for all been delivered to us from God in his word. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you that through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only delivered us from our own lust and the deadly consequences of what comes naturally to us as sinners, but you have freed us to embrace by faith your ethic, your design for human sexuality. And I pray that you would fortify our faith, that we would stand firm in it, live by it for not only your glory, but for our good and for a witness. That that the faith that has been entrusted to us, that we we would guard it and contend for it by our obedience to it and not warp it and pervert it by adjusting our doctrine so that we're more accommodating to our culture. God, protect us, please. We pray this for the glory and the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. We desperately need strength from God to contend.